Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. Today is the 29th of July 2019 and this is episode 124. On today's programme, William Franklin talks about the First World War career of Archibald Wavell. I spoke to William from his home in London. William, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the, in the Great War and Wavell in particular? When I was teaching history and politics at a school in Poole, Dorset, I used to help run our annual school trip to the Western Front battlefields. I'd always been interested in military history, but the trips really boosted my interest in the Great War. After I retired from full-time teaching in 2013, I did an MA in military history on the, on the University of Buckingham London programme, and my thesis was a study of the leadership of Field Marshal Lord Slim. Slim served under Wavell, and I thought that he was a somewhat forgotten figure and a fascinating one, as he was not only a soldier but a scholar and lover of poetry. I therefore embarked on a part-time PhD at the University of Wolverhampton in September 2016, and my intention is to analyse and assess Corelli Barnett's claim that Archibald Wavell was the greatest British general of the Second World War. Can you start by telling us about Archibald Wavell's career and background before the First World War, and why did he, why did he choose the army as a career? Archibald Percival Wavell was born on the 5th of May 1883, to Archibald Graham Wavell, a major in the Norfolk Regiment, and his wife Lily. Major Wavell later transferred to the Black Watch, the regiment that Archibald Percival would join and remain devoted to for the rest of his life. He attended Summerfield's Prep School in Oxford and in 1896 entered Winchester College as a scholar, another institution that he would be devoted to and in whose Chantry Cloister you will find his grave. There is a famous anecdote that the headmaster of Winchester told Wavell's father that his son was too intelligent to go into the army, a rather tactless remark to make to a soldier. And in fact, Wavell had no great interest in being a soldier, but did so because it was a family tradition. Both his grandfather and father had been soldiers, and Archibald Graham even finished his career as a major general. Archibald Percival entered Sandhurst in 1900. And tell us about his career after Sandhurst. After leaving Sandhurst in 1901, he served with the Black Watch at the tail end of the Boer War and then in India. In 1909, he entered the Staff College at Camberley as a lieutenant. In his time there, the two commandants were Henry Wilson and William Robertson, both of whom would have a considerable influence on the young Wavell and his future career and both were to hold Wavell in high regard. After Staff College, Robertson recommended that Wavell go off to Russia to learn the language, and in March 1912 he was appointed General Staff Officer 3 in the Russian section of the Directorate of Military Operations, whose overall chief was Henry Wilson. In the spring of 1914, the so-called Kara Mutiny took place, and Wavell wrote to his father that he was horrified by the idea of officers going on strike, as he put it because the men couldn't resign, whatever their opinions were, and the notion of the army becoming involved in politics was disastrous. Wavell thought that politicians had inflamed the situation and made him very wary of them. Indeed, Wavell himself was to have a lot of misunderstandings with Churchill in the Second World War, 
they never really made an effort to understand each other. So what did he do in the Great War and how, does his, how did his experience shape him as a soldier and a person? The outbreak of war found Wavell in charge of the MO5 section of the General Staff, a forerunner of military intelligence. He was very keen to get to the front and managed to hand over his responsibilities to a retired MO5 officer. He started at GHQ in Flanders, but due to the high casualty rate among officers, he got himself appointed Brigade Major of 9th Infantry Brigade at Hooge on the Menin Road in the Ypres Salient in November 1914. One of his fellow officers was a Summerfield's friend, Kenneth Buchanan, who wrote to Archie John, Wavell's son, many years later, saying that his father was the most efficient staff officer officer that he'd ever encountered in the army. This was because he was dedicated to his work, a good delegator of jobs, possessed incredible stamina and was exceptionally brave. He was always on the front line, checking on things which were probably unusual for a brigade major who was the chief staff officer of a brigade. He got some leave in April 1915 and managed to get home to marry his fiancée, Eugenie Quirk, the daughter of an army officer, and with whom he would have four children. He returned to Ypres to become involved in the Battle of Bellwater, where on June the 16th, as he was returning to the brigade dugout, he was wounded by shrapnel or a bullet and lost his left eye. He was sent home to recover. He returned to the Western Front in November 1915, after having been warded the MC for gallantry and good service at Ypres earlier in the year. He was assigned to the operations branch of the general staff, and the bulk of his work was connected to the organisation of training. As the Battle of the Somme drew to a close, Robertson, by now Chief of the Imperial General Staff, informed him that he was going to be posted as a liaison officer to the Russian army of the Caucasus fighting the Turks. Revolution was in the air and Wavell was, was recalled in April 1917 to be given another liaison job, which was to have a huge impact on his career and life. Robertson was going to send him to the Middle East to be his liaison officer between himself and the new commander-in-chief of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, General Sir Edmund Allenby, and a promotion to Brevet Lieutenant Colonel. Victoria Schofield, one of Wavell's more recent biographers, wrote that for the rest of his life, Edmund Allenby was to Wavell the personification of greatness. Wavell was to learn many useful things under him and indeed become Allenby's biographer. Wavell noted that in all professions, especially the military, character, by which he termed as the courage and determination to achieve a goal, was of greater importance than brains or experience, probably only a remark made by someone who had both. Wavell believed that Allenby could stand the strain of command, as he had absolute courage, physical and moral. He acted quickly in danger. Courage, loyalty, trust and straightforwardness, all these were Allenby's. Wavell wasn't oblivious to Allenby's faults. He thought that he lacked a measure of self-control, did not have the humanity displayed by someone like Field Marshal Lord Plumer, and could be childishly petulant and lacked the enthusiasm to inspire disciples, except perhaps Wavell himself. All these qualities and defects Wavell was to weigh up when he acquired high command. Wavell learned a number of practical attributes from his time serving under Allenby. Speed is armour. Allenby did it with horses, notably at Beersheba in 1917 and in the Megiddo campaign in 1918. And, and Wavell's brilliant subordinate, Richard O'Connor, was to do it with tanks and vehicles in the Western Desert against the Italian, Italians in 1940-41. He learned the importance of terrain and how to use it, and also from Allenby's cooperation with the Royal Navy and RAF in the Palestinian campaign. Allenby was to use deceptive tactics to fool the enemy about his true intentions. Wavell was to do the same when he acquired high command in the Middle East. He also learned from, from Allenby that the, uh, that the CNC should be seen, 
and he was to do the same in his commands in the Second World War. In December 1917, Wavell returned to London to make reports to Robertson. Robertson then sent him off to be his eyes and ears on the Supreme War Council at Versailles, where Robertson believed they were talking a lot of nonsense about Palestine. Wavell had mixed feelings about the experience there, and after a number of weeks he wished to return to Palestine. Wilson, who was Lloyd George's representative on the SWC, thought this, this was an extraordinary thing, because being at the SWC was being at the hub of things. Anyhow, Wavell took the bold step of returning to Palestine without a posting, and eventually found himself appointed Brigadier General Staff, 220 Corps, commanded by Lieutenant General Sir Philip Chetwood, whom Wavell regarded as having the best and quickest brain in the army. Chetwood was impressed by Wavell, and so were the other members of his staff who admired his patience and efficiency. Under Chetwood's command, Wafel was able to put his administrative talents into operation by integrating the newly arrived Indian units into the Corps and managing logistics and training. Wavell ended the First World War in the Middle East. He, had, he himself found the Western Front experience a very dull, unimaginative and heavy-footed business and preferred his more unorthodox wayfarings. But I think the seven months or so he spent in the Eat Salient between November 1914 and June 1915 were very important in his development as a soldier and a person. The accomplished biographer Ronald Lewin stated that apart from the trivial epi episodes early in his career, Wavell never led man, men into action or knew the personal involvement and perhaps the heartbreak of leading his company, his battalion or his division to the slaughter. In the two world wars, he was either a staff commander or a commander-in-chief. Nevertheless, as Lewin pointed out, in those early months of the war, when Wavell was the brigade major of 9th Brigade, he was an habitué of the front line. Wavell made it his job to visit trenches, otherwise he couldn't do his job properly. Nobody who shared so intimately the self-sacrifice of the BEF at Ypres could be ignorant of the responsibilities and price of leadership. Wavell's time with 9th Brigade enabled him to understand what he called the actualities of war. In a letter written to the historian Basil Little Hart in July 1935, Wavell said that military historians neglected the actualities of war, the effects of tiredness, hunger, fear, lack of sleep, weather. He had a deep understanding of what the frontline soldier was going through and how he could show it and he showed it later in his highest commands. The regimental history of the 7th Hussars commented that in the retreat from Burma in 1942, General Wavell was always welcome. He was in himself a tonic. Later, in August 1944, Sergeant Idris Berry of the Intelligence Section, attached to 33rd Indian Brigade at Kahima in northeast India, observed that our men appear to like Wavell much better than other and lesser particularly and lesser breeds of brass hats who had descended on us regularly from Delhi in this war. The first queens were particularly well disposed to him, and for his part I think the Viceroy enjoyed being with us in this battle-scarred hill station. So even as Viceroy of India, Wavell could cut it with a citizen soldier and be appreciated by him. What did he do after the Great War? He remained in Palestine immediately after the war, and then in 1920 he rejoined the Black Watch in Germany. He was promoted to full colonel in 1921, and in the same year he took up various staff appointments at the War Office, until going on half pay in 1926. He was appointed GSO 1 of the 3rd Division in November of, and in November of that year. In 1928, Wavell published his account of the Palestinian campaigns, and began to establish himself as a writer on military matters. He was appointed 
to the command of the 6th Infantry Brigade and began to formulate Field Service Regulations 2, which I'll refer to later. It is during the 1930s that he exchanged many letters with the defence correspondent Little Hart discussing military matters. Wavell was promoted Major General in 1933 and seen as one of the rising stars in the army. He took command of 2nd Division in 1935 and two years later was promoted to become GOC Palestine. He returned to England in 1938 as the Lieutenant General in charge of Southern Command. In February 1939, he delivered the Lee Knowles Lectures on Generals and Generalship at the University of Cambridge. In July of that year, he was appointed to full general, knighted, and made Commander-in-Chief in the Middle East. He was Commander-in-Chief in the Middle East from 1939 to 1941. He oversaw stunning victories over the Italians in North and East Africa, disastrous campaigns in Greece and Crete against the Germans, successful ones in Syria and Iraq, and was outmaneuvered by Rommel in North Africa in the spring of 1941. Churchill lost patience with him, and he swapped jobs with the CNC of the Indian Army, General Sir Claude Auchinleck. Wavell went off to India and was brief briefly Supreme Commander of the American, British, Dutch and Australian Command when the Japanese attacked in the Far East and Pacific. This ABDA command was disbanded after Japan's stunning victories and Wavell's reverted to being CNC India again. He was beset by internal Indian security problems, as well as having to combat the Japanese, whom historians believe he always underestimated. In 1942, he oversaw the disastrous first Arakan campaign, a first attempt to drive the Japanese out of Burma, but did give his support to the creation of the Chinjits, and realised a severe training problem in the British Indian Army was needed if the Japanese were to be beaten. In 1941, he was promoted to Field Marshal, but Churchill believed that he should hold no more military commands. He was made the Viceroy of India in October 1943, a position he handed over to Lord Mountbatten in 1947. As a mark of recognition of his service, he became Earl Wavell, and he died on the 24th of May 1950 at the age of 67. And how did his Great War experience shape his future military career before and during the Second World War? As I've already mentioned, in 1932, Wavell was set to revive Field Serve Regulations 2, the tactical manual for the British Army. Gary Sheffield has criticised Wavell for initially not fully understanding the role of infantry and what it achieved in the final year of the Great War, probably because he left the Western Front in 1916. In 1932, Field Marshal Mill, the CIGS, had asked Lieutenant General Sir Walter Kirk to establish a committee to learn the lessons of the Great War. However, by the time FSR 2 was published in 1935, Wavell had learned the lessons from the Western Front, namely that infantry was now cooperating with other arms outlined in the Kirk report. Wavell also explored the potential of armour in a letter exchange with his friend Alan Brooke, the director of military training and later commander of the Mobile Division, before Wavell went to Palestine as GOC. What Wavell did not learn from Allenby was the ability to conduct a generalship of famine, Gary Sheffield puts it. Wavell commanded a vast theatre in the two, first two years of the Second World War and had very limited resources to fight a number of campaigns. Allenby and Haig were lucky to fight a rich man's war from 1917 to 18, not so Wavell. The American historian Raymond Callahan considers Wavell a gambler, a general who embarked on a course of action 
believing it would turn out all right in the end. It worked very well in the campaigns against the Italians in 1940-41, but not so well in the campaigns against the Germans and Japanese. Major General Sir John Kennedy, the able director of military operations at the War Office for most of the Second World War, observed that every commander in the field had been subjected to pressure by his government to adapt to, to, adapt to this or that strategy. But the great commander had always displayed a considerable degree of toughness or stubbornness in resisting propositions that he believed to be unsound. Kennedy believed that Wavell should have stood up to Churchill when being pressurised to embark on the Greek campaign in 1941 with scant resources, not helped by Wavell's inability to orally communicate with his political master because of his legendary taciturnity. Kennedy added that Douglas Hay would never have acquiesced to such pressure. Robertson would have sighed that Wavell had not learned some of the lessons he had taught him. Lewin points out that in the Far East, Wavell forgot the lessons of the Great War, experienced on the Western Front and before Allenby arrived in the Middle East, of thrusting troops across open country again and again towards an enemy ensconced in good defensive positions. In the first Arakan campaign of 1942-43, to he pressed his hapless field commanders, Generals Irwin and Lloyd, to continually attack strong Japanese bunkers, which resulted in heavy casualties. Wavell, underestimating the Japanese, believed that they were poor in defence. Some people might like to think that his association, indeed his later friendship with T. Lawrence, inspired his liking for unorthodox soldiers. Wavell admitted that the inspiration came from his remarkable grandfather, Arthur Goodall Wavell, who fought in the Spanish army in the Peninsular War, not Wellington's, and later in the armies of Chile and Mexico during their wars of liberation. Wavell liked Lawrence and saw the value of his Arab guerrillas in distracting the Turks in Alabi's campaigns, but didn't regard him as a great captain as he had no formal military training. Wavell saw the value of Mavericks in the Second World War, and used the master of deception, Dudley Clark, and the founder of the long-range desert group, Ralph Bagnold, in North Africa, and, of course, the controversial Ord Wingate in East Africa and Burma. Raymond Callahan points out that Wavell was quite unsure of himself tactically, tactically and was flawed strategically sometimes in the Great War, in the Second World War. He was not so lucky as Allenby to reveal tactical brilliance. What Wavell was able to do was to keep a very difficult show on the road in the early years of the Second World War before Britain was joined by superpower allies. He demonstrated an unconquerable spirit, carry on the fight and not despair. That was the quality that Wavell recognised in Foch, Haig and Allenby. I believe it was forged in the years 1914 to 18. And finally, William, where can people learn more about your research? I have already given a talk to my own London branch of the WFA on Wavell in the First World War, and I'm happy to visit other branches if invited. William, thank you very much for your time. Great, thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...